If I were human, I believe my response would be go to hell. If I were human. Course heading, Captain. Second star to the right. And straight on till morning. Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, and do you like my bolted-on eye patch? And I'm Elizabeth, student of humanoid psychology, and do you like my Pepto-Bismol blood? <laughs> our mission is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I are celebrating having broadcast 30 episodes by spending a couple of weeks looking at how Star Trek celebrated its own 30th anniversary. To set that up, we're delighted to be doing Movie Night again and to have a chat about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. It was written by Leonard Nimoy, Lawrence Connor, and Mark Rosenthal and directed by Nicholas Meyer. It premiered in 1991. Bang! We see the explosion of the Klingon moon Praxis. The shockwave knocks around the nearby USS Excelsior, captained by none other than Hitaro Sulu. Two months later, Spock delivers this news in a classified briefing to start for the command, as well as the remainder of the old Enterprise crew. There are two competing factions, both within the Klingon Empire and within the Federation, regarding how to proceed. The Empire is on the verge of collapse over the incident. Spock has volunteered Kirk and company to extend the olive branch, but Admiral Cartwright and notably Kirk himself are very skeptical of this approach and of any sort of disarmament by Starfleet. After chastising Spock for putting him in this situation, he dutifully takes the Enterprise A out on its last mission. We meet the new helmsman, the Vulcan Valeris, who is quickly established as a capable and ambitious young officer whom Spock intends to replace him on the Enterprise. Do not recognize that a turning point has been reached in the affairs of the Federation. Hmm. History is replete with turning points, Lieutenant. You must have faith. Faith? That the universe will unfold as it should. Through gritted teeth, Kirk invites Klingon Chancellor Gorkon and his party to dinner, heralding the expected peace treaty to which they are being escorted. The dinner is tense, thanks in part to copious helpings of Romulan ale. We know where this is leading. The annihilation of our culture. That's not true. No. No. To be or not to be. That is the question which preoccupies our people, Captain Kirk. We need breathing room. Earth, Hitler, 1938. I beg your pardon. While the command crew attempt to manage their hangovers, they are shocked to witness their own ship fire torpedoes at the Klingon vessel, severely disabling it. While they attempt to understand what has happened, two people in Starfleet pressure suits beam over to the Klingon ship and assassinate Gorkon and many other Klingon dignitaries. Chang vows to avenge himself on the Enterprise, but Kirk wisely surrenders in an attempt to salvage the diplomatic procedure. Unarmed, he and McCoy beam over to offer aid. You crippled our entire gravitational field, and two of your Starfleet crew beamed aboard wearing magnetic boots and did this. Aren't you carrying a surgeon? We were until this disgrace. Well, then, for God's sakes, man, let me help. Don't let it end this way, Captain. Chang has the pair arrested. Spock springs into action, but those ambassadors on Earth for the peace conference, including Sarek, agree that Kirk and McCoy must be allowed to be tried. Gorkon's daughter is appointed chancellor in his stead, and she agrees to proceed with the peace process, providing Kirk pays for her father's death. Using Kirk's documented prejudice and circumstantial evidence, Chang deftly frames him for Gorkon's assassination in the Klingon court, and he and McCoy are sentenced to life imprisonment on Urapenthe. Urapenthe is a harsh, wintry asteroid on which prisoners mine dilithium. They meet a shapeshifter called Martia, who informs them there's a price on their head. Amid the harrowing misadventure, Kirk confesses his own failure to appreciate the future to McCoy. Bones. 
Are you afraid of the future? Of what might happen? I was terrified. What terrified you specifically? No more neutral zone. I was used to hating Klingons. It never even occurred to me to take Gorkin at his word. Meanwhile, Spock and Valeris head an investigation to uncover the conspiracy to frame Kirk. This hinges on the search for the assassin's gravity boots, as well as lying to Starfleet about the Enterprise's engine status and some conspicuous pink Klingon blood. With Marty's help, Kirk and McCoy engineer an escape from the mines, but it's a race against the elements for the Enterprise to cross the intergalactic border and beam them up before they freeze to death. Upon their rescue, what remains is to protect the likely sabotage of the now-secret peace conference. You see, Spock determines Valeris to have been the mastermind behind Gorkhan's assassination and Kirk's framing. You have betrayed the Federation. All of you. And what do you think you've been doing? Saving Starfleet. Klingons cannot be trusted. A forced mind meld with her reveals the co-conspirators, Cartwright, Chang, and the Romulan ambassador. All points converge on Kittimer. While the delegates prepare in good faith to negotiate for peace, the assassin prepares to murder the Federation president. The Enterprise and Excelsior engage in space battle with Chang's cloaked bird of prey while he madly spouts Shakespeare quotations in their familiar English instead of the original Klingon. They manage to dispatch Chang and beam down to Kittimer just in time to stop the assassination. Pardoned, and with a real peace looming, Kirk and his crew bid farewell to the Enterprise and to the franchise. So I'm hoping now, going back to our original movie night, Elizabeth, when we did Generations, which is the movie that followed this one, that you see what I mean about treading water with, with Kirk, especially with, with this movie sending such sending them off in such a beautiful way and then like, nope, nope, we're going to do it all over again. Yeah, it, I can see what you mean now. It's like, wait, we've already, he's already done the like self introspection retrospective like coming to terms with his legacy like yeah and like that landed well and like now we're doing it again okay this is starting to get sour yeah i can see it yeah um so leaving that aside i think it's a good thing to to begin with kirk here because you know he's <clears throat> put in an interesting position for the protagonist i mean this movie isn't totally centered on him but it does not, you know, the franchise has a reputation, not totally fair, of Kirk always being like the, the macho hero. He's always right and the captain's always right. And that's a, that's a thing in Star Trek a lot of the time. But he's definitely like got some demons here and he struggles and is pretty prejudiced, racist, you could say, in an in a, in a alien context. Um, yeah. it's, it's an interesting framing for, for your hero of your movie. They're animals, Jim. There is an historic opportunity here. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. They are dying. Let them die. Well, that was kind of the feeling I was getting while watching this movie, and it was the first time I'd seen it. It was kind of like, you know, when Kirk is on trial um, with the Klingons, I kind of feel like it's his entire Starfleet career that's, like, being tried. Like, mm. everything he has done up until that point, all the stereotypical, like, captain of the Enterprise hero shit, you know? And now it's being, like, cast in a light that, like, really was that so great? Um, huh. And I, I thought that was a, a really interesting, like, take on it. You know, this, like, meta commentary on just, like, the way the franchise had been to that point. Yeah, I, I had never thought about it that way, but there's, you know, the, the movie is sort of infamous or famous, whatever, for that, for the last scene where, like, the, you know, they, they get their applause and then they do their curtain right. call and, like, here we all are, off right into the sunset. <clears throat> and I think the movie earns that moment. Um, but it does, to balance that, have this sort of reckoning, now that you mention it, with, like, yeah, was, was everything really so great? <laughs> About you yeah. and the way you handled things. So what stands out here is, uh, you know, Kirk is dealing with this the prospect of change. Uh, well, everyone is, not just Kirk, but Kirk is our, is our point of view character. And he, we often think about things like prejudice and racism and, and, and intolerance and those sort of things as sort of cultural phenomena. And they are, of course, um, and sort of social, uh, political issues. But we 
are usually looking at that, at least on the left, I guess, we're usually looking at that as a privileged class dealing with an unjustifiable prejudice against an underprivileged class. Uh, and not to say that any of that is not true, but what this film sheds a light on a bit is the fact that a lot of that comes from trauma. A lot of that comes from not reconciling with demons um, from, from an individual's past. I guess that's where I'm sort of going with this is like on an individual level, the way there's this interplay between the social phenomenon and the personal uh, flaw, right? Character flaw. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to speak a little bit about that because I know we haven't talked about Star Trek three yet, which is um, the one in which Kirk's son is killed, but it's mentioned. And I think, okay. I think you, I think you get enough of that. Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the, I got the context and I, I might've also looked it up on whatever the like <laughs> fandom Wikipedia is. I'm like, Whoa, what happened here? <laughs> Captain's log star date 9522.6. I've never trusted Klingons and I never will. never forgive them for the death of my boy yeah kirk's prejudice against the klingons i thought was like really pointed and really strong like stronger than i expected even though his like even though his son has been killed like it felt and part of that might have been just like we're making a movie and we have to make this like theatrical and dramatic and like Mm -hmm. bigger than life you know so like part of it might have been like a writing plot plot point for it um, but if I look at it psychologically, um, you know, our brain, um, you've heard of implicit bias, right? Would you mind just defining that really quickly? So implicit bias is usually this unconscious prejudice that someone will have against another person. And it's just kind of that in a flash instinctual just reaction to some certain stimuli like we talk about it with like police officers a lot who like will shoot somebody like when really there's been no reason for that to happen but because because of a lot of things that are happening all at once implicit bias being one of them the animal part of them which culturally we don't really acknowledge but it is like the animal part of us has this immediate reaction in order to defend itself. And when that reaction does not align with our cultural societal expectations about how we should behave, that is the, that's a revealing the gap. And two is like what part of implicit bias is. It's that automatic, like usually unconscious, just quick reaction and assessment of a situation. So like a a less charged example, um, is okay, let's say a kid gets bitten by a dog, and after that point, they are terrified of dogs every time they see one. Like, mm-hmm. you, that does that make sense to you? Right, I see. Yeah, yeah, there's a part of our brain, the amygdala, is constantly looking both in our external environment and our internal environment, and just like it's constantly assessing the stimuli that it's receiving. And essentially, it, it part of it is a binary function of safe, not safe. And so your brain on this like really unconscious level is constantly assessing your environment for threat. Yeah. And if it senses anything that at one point in your life was a threat, like a dog, if you got bit by a dog when you were young, it's going to immediately say potential threat and like give all these cues to your system to try to protect you from what it's deeming is um, something that is potentially dangerous, whether or not the thing is actually dangerous. Like this is just happening on a like very instinctual level. You know, in some cases it makes sense. You know, it makes sense that like, oh, hey, if a dog bit you when you were four, anytime you see anything that reminds you of that, your system's going to try to protect you. So therefore dogs are all, all dogs are scary. It's a little black and white. You know, which is part of also what happens in more charged things. Uh, yay, racism! I didn't even mean for that to go there, but that's where I went. It's it's one of the many ironies in this movie in that so Chang and Kirk, you know, Chang sees Kirk as a kindred spirit, um, despite the fact that they're on opposite sides of this thing. It's like we know you and I that we're supposed to be fighting. That is the natural mm. state of things. 
because I'm Klingon and you're human. And I know you haven't seen a ton of the original series yet, but that was the status quo, of course, during the 60s, during the original series, is the Klingons are allegorizing a few things, but we've talked about this before. They're basically allegorizing the Soviets, so it's appropriate, of course, that we're doing this Soviet thing, which we'll we'll, we'll get back to, of course. Um, And so for Kirk, Kirk is wrapped up in terms of how he... Um, channels his his prejudice on this event of this personal trauma of his son being murdered by a Klingon, the Klingons, all Klingons. But it really is in service of what he's just used to in terms of the dynamic between himself and these other people. Is that, yes, there's this one event, but it's not really about this one event. That's just the sort of catalyst point. Um, And... That's that, that that to me that ties into what you're saying about so using this example of the dog thing. It's like if you came into a situation where you already had some sort of habitual um, fear of dogs or whatever for whatever reason, and then one bit you, that's always going to be your reason to say, "Uh huh, see, this is how dogs are. Dogs bite you. That's what they do." Yeah, it's confirmation bias. Yeah, you know, you're like, "Oh, hey, this." This supports an idea I already have, and now I have an emotional charge to like even clamp down on it more and be like, yep, this is 100% what's true. And, you know, part of that is neurobiological. You know, part of it is literally how our bodies have evolved to stay alive, you know. But then human culture makes everything so much more complicated. Um, <laughs> You're going to say worse. <laughs> complicated is better, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, projection moment. Um, yeah, so, so part of it's neurobiological, part of it is cultural, and, and part of it also is also just how the human psyche works. You know, you know, you were saying earlier, like all dogs are bad. You know, all Klingons are bad. Yeah. Like that's a very like you know binary, stark contrast. You're all good or you're all bad, and there's like no middle ground. Like that's a very immature defense mechanism essentially like that's how kids think and that's how unfortunately a lot of adults think as well but you want to get them past the point because like no one's all good and all bad but that is a early like developmental defense mechanism as a way to protect yourself like you are all like oh if you are anything other than completely benevolent to me you must be evil and i have to stay away from you in order to keep myself safe it's immature, it's underdeveloped, like no one is all good or all bad, but we have these like really early ways of defending ourselves against threats and that's one of them. And so for me, like whenever anyone is saying every something is all good or all bad, I'm just immediately like, oh, okay, this is where you are in understanding the world in which you live, where mm-hmm. you think things are neat and categorical and not this weird, messy thing okay like you know and then how do you how do you help grow them along that developmental like arc in terms of the 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 sort of cultural familiar piece of that um one of the things that stuck out to me you know the, the 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 relationship between valeris and spock is highlighted of course and we can i definitely want to come back to it but when they confront Valeris at the end and it's revealed that she had um, recorded his like log that was used then in the yeah. in the trial and she was like, did, did you not mean what you said when you were like... Klingons cannot be trusted. Sir, you said so yourself. They killed your son. Did you not wish Gorkon dead? Let them die, you said. Did I misinterpret you? You know, she's the young, the next generation coming up, hearing these words from someone she respects, from her elder, elders. Um, and it, th- that's that's one of the really, for me, poignant pieces of this movie is this idea that, like, yeah. the old folks are sort of struggling with, like, oh, I don't know if I can get over myself to for this new world. And we're sort of kind of going along, doing their thing, talking, having their conversations, not realizing that they're leaving behind these these words which to the younger generation are really powerful and and shaping right um and yeah kirk lost his son but he's still this father figure you know what i mean couldn't get past the death of my son i was prejudiced 
by her accomplishments as a Balkan. Balkan had to die before I understood how prejudiced I was. Oh no, that's actually not what I want to mean. Maybe in that moment I did, but like upon reflection, like that's not the kind of person I want to be. And and I wish everybody kind of was able to see them see their more cringy parts of themselves in that way, and and with the ability to like make a make a more conscious choice about the way they want to show up in the world and and the legacy they want to leave. Yeah, I want to get more into uh, this piece of it with you in, in a little bit, but it's one of those things about being the age that we are now, our mid thirties, yeah. um, where we're at that transition point. Um, it, when, when you're young, when you're a young adult or a teenager or whatever you, um, I, I, there's this justifiable assumption that people are kind of young people are all sort of on this side of the political spectrum. We all kind of agree. We're all, um, generally left and generally like, uh, open-minded and ex exploratory. And that's statistically sort of true. Um, and then you see the old folks as all sort of stuck in the past, conservative, and like, how can, how can they still have these beliefs? And then in your 30s, you're, you're witnessing this transition <laughs> where you suddenly you see people who are like your peers um, saying things that you remember your grandparents saying in maybe different words. But you're like, wait a minute, I thought this was dying. I thought this thing was going to die with this generation. And yet here it is again. And where does that come from? And how, how can this possibly be happening? And you're just sort of swept up <laughs> in this in this shift. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a powerful moment for Kirk. And I think a good way to close that is arc. I, I, I want to agree with you. <laughs> and um, to just be a devil's advocate for a second, we, we tend to assume people are like us until proven otherwise. You know, so you and I happen to be on the liberal side of the American political spectrum right now, you know, and I use that word slightly loosely, you know, yeah. slightly loosely. So we, and what you said, we assume most young people are, you know, liberal left, left leaning, like our age. Um, I don't, I, I don't think that's true. Actually, yeah. we think that because we think people are like us until it's proven otherwise. Um, and that's just part of the human, you know, that's part of projection. That's just human nature. It's just like, we think people are like us until we realize they're not. And then we have to readjust our idea of who they are. Um, it, and culturally, I do think there's a lot of evidence to say that you get more conservative as you get older. And that doesn't have to necessarily be the only story. You know, I think I think that like we also live in a really ageist culture that devalues um, the more experience and, and wisdom and age that people have. And there's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that can sometimes happen where you think, oh, I'm getting older. I must now become curmudgingly conservative and grumpy and like look at how everything is changing and I'm not OK with that. Like if you think that's all that's available to you, like on a unconscious level, you're going to just do that. Who do you think you are is who you become. Yeah. I think, does that make sense? Like oh, yeah. the idea of who you can be will determine what options are available to you and what actions you will take, and what choices you will make. And so if we think that when we get older, all these negative things, like the, the, there's only all these negative things for us. Inevitably, um, yeah. Inevitably, yeah. We will never look for the chances to actually be any different than that. Touching again on our ages, um, you know, so it's, we're, we're building up to the 30th anniversary. This movie is more like the 25th anniversary of the franchise okay. when it when it came out, which of course is, uh, so this movie is closer to the premiere of Star Trek temporally than we are to it, which is, doesn't that make you feel nice and young? <laughs> Ooh, okay, uh, okay, weird, weird. But of course, so 1991, uh, less than two years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the allegories, you know, if you know anything about the fall of the Berlin Wall, 
um, the allegories to the allusions to it rather in the movie are really kind of obvious. Like Praxis is uh, Chernobyl and Gorkhan is uh, Gorbachev. And there's, there's a bunch of things that we, we may come back to, but for you and me, we were small children at the time this happened. Right. And um, most of the like reviews and analyses that I've encountered of this movie are from people who were themselves adults or at least like maybe teenagers at the time that the movie came out, which makes sense. Um, and those illusions were very like present because that's what was going on in the world at the time. Right. And for us, I wonder like how, how those things hit, what the movie might mean. Um, I don't know what, what did, did, did that stuff stick out to you? No, I had no idea. That's what the allegory was. Like I oh, wasn't really? thinking about the, yeah, I wasn't thinking about the Cold War or the fall of the Berlin Wall or anything like that. That's actually kind of hilarious. <laughs> um, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't know. I wasn't thinking about that. That's that's a great place to start then. So what, on a political level, um, what did you get out of this movie not not having that um, context present of mind? Uh, on a political, okay, on a political level? Um I don't know. For 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 me, it's really still tied into like that courtroom scene with Kirk. You know, it's really for me. Like I was watching this movie as a self examination of what Star Trek had been to that point. You know, and whether or not all those you know things that we thought were for the righteous glory of the old days, hmm. you know, actually like stood up to the test of time, and like what did we want to be moving forward. Like, that's what I was, that's how I was kind of viewing the movie, was this sense of really looking back at what the franchise had been, and like, with maybe a slightly more critical eye than it had had at the time. What would your favorite author say, Captain? Let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Tell us your sad story, Kirk. Tell us that you plan to take revenge for the death of your son. That's not true. Objection! Captain Kirk has not been identified as the assassin. Sustained. I offer into the record this excerpt from the captain's personal log. I've never trusted Klingons. And I never will. I've never been able to forgive them for the death of my boy. That's, that's a fascinating layer to put on top of this because, you know, if we do take the the allegory that the intended uh i keep saying allegory it's more of an illusion it is an allegory okay uh if we do the the intended allegory um of the klingon empire being the soviet union and therefore the um federation being the united states or maybe more broadly the west um europe and and the united states and whatnot uh then that level of introspection is actually very brave for the time because it was like, we won. That was what had literally just happened, is that despite no, yeah. everyone thinking the USSR is never going to fall, the Cold War is going to go on forever, um, and the only our, our task politically is just to make sure that we don't blow ourselves up in a nuclear oblivion, which, you know, back to that. Um, that never really went away. Uh, the fact that the film is, is, is looking as much, at, even more so at ourselves, right? At our own, yeah. like, issues going into this brave new world um, is incredibly brave in that respect because it is not gloating in the victory, which that in that way, despite the film's cynicism about certain things, like, oh, yeah, people in the Federation are still racist and problematic, yeah. um, it is still very Star Trek in that respect in that it says, no, 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 we need to not stand on the heads of our, beheaded heads, heads of our enemies. We need to be we need to work through whatever trauma we have as a culture in order to find uh, peace moving forward. Oh, wouldn't that be great if we could like take that same attitude today? Ugh. People don't like to look at their shit, you know, <laughs> I think that's true on an individual and collective level, you know, like in, to, for me, like, you know, today I feel like really looking at the history of racism in the United States and really doing a lot of like truth and reconciliation around that. Like people don't want to do it. It's really hard to look back and say like, whoa, that was not okay. And I, and fucked up. And 
there's no excuse. And like, we just have to like, and then, you know, really, really owning the shadow side of your own life and experience, you know? And like, no one wants to do that. We want to always be the hero of our own story. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, but we're not all good and we're not all bad. And if you pretend like there's no bad, it just festers and gets so much worse. And I like the idea that Star Trek was doing that, you know, on some level, even if it wasn't completely intentional. Um, and, and as someone who is more familiar with Star Trek after this, it was also very strange for me to be like, whoa, there is a, what, what's with this prejudice and discrimination in this world? I thought we were in the, like, the, you know, the past this point, here's what's possible. But like, I appreciate, I appreciate them exploring that transition, which can be difficult. And, and I, I loved that line. You don't trust me, do you? I don't blame you. If there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. This will be better for everyone in the future, but it's going to suck for us. And are, are we willing to make that sacrifice for the people who are coming next? Well, it begs the question again. You know, we we this movie is aware of the age of its characters, and we're so we are consequently aware of our ages, you and I, um, and it, it, the fall of the Soviet Union happened because of like specific events. Uh, Chernobyl is like the flashpoint, literally, um, but it's not just, of course, one thing. It's lots of things, different things yeah. happening, kind of around the same time. Um, but you wonder, like, okay, if that hadn't happened, if certain things uh, in the USSR had been a little bit more, they had their shit together <laughs> on, a, on a technical level, that wouldn't have happened. And it may, who knows what would be happening today. Um, and it, it begs the question then, so for people of Kirk and, uh, and Gorkhan's generation, would they ever be able to get over their own selves to be able to make change if it's not forced upon them. And that's, mm-hmm. to me, <clears throat> again, not yet being that age where we are s- sort of more fully entrenched in our biases and, and, and beliefs about the world. We're somewhere between um, that kind of psychological place and the and the psychological place of youth where anything's possible. Um, finding a way to guard against that in, in, in recalcitrance, right? To, to find a way to, to, to keep the mind um, flexible. Is it possible that we too, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible that we have outlived our usefulness? Would that constitute a joke? So I think I think that plays in to a little bit of what I was talking about earlier about like what do we think the possibilities are for us when we get older? Like, do we believe that our brains become less plastic? You know, like we lo- like lose that neuroplasticity, that ability to make new connections and change. It definitely slows down, but it never stops. And so I think the people whose brains really do kind of freeze when they're you know 20, 30, 40, 50 like they they're locking themselves into something that they don't need to be locked into, you know? So I, I just, I just, again, want to like throw a little bit of just, that's not necessarily what has to happen when we get older. Um, if you believe that's what's going to happen, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So like, that's, that's the eye, that's the rub. Like what, <laughs> what's, what's your self concept and what's possible for you? And in what ways are those limiting and in what ways are those expansive and like allow for more possibility for you in your life. And I think it's really hard for anybody to change their self-identity and their self-concept, you know, like regardless of how old you are. Um, And there's this great quote by Akram Khan, people change in four different seasons or for four different reasons. One, People change when they hurt enough that they have to. Hmm. Two, people change when they see enough that they are inspired to. Three, people change when they learn enough that they want to. 
And four, people change when they receive enough that they are able to. That quote, in terms of how that applies to this film, it applies to a lot of people at once, but I think it's most prevalent in looking at um, Gorkhan's daughter, right? Um, Who has every reason to be just as uh, motivated by her, like, negativity around the, you know, it's like, on the one hand... You killed my father. Yeah, just like Kirk lost a beloved person... And not only that, but there's the fact that he, Gorkhan himself, was like the image of this new piece and this new way, and he was killed for it. And everyone around her is saying, like, Your father was killed for what he wanted. The peace process will go forward. Kirk. Kirk will pay for my father's death. It's the fact that, you know, she is kind of, it kind of hinges on her to receive, right? To receive that, the, the, uh, the, the change that Kirk goes through and, 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 and his experience and bring um, that little bit of plasticity in his, his old mind and his old body uh, to bear and for her to say, oh, even men of my father's generation can go through this change just enough to be able to see past their own trauma and their own hurt then then I can stand in for this new generation um, and and provide the the means for for actual change and lasting change I like that perspective with her I actually noticed um, you know at the end she like recognized her father's dream in what Kirk was saying and I think that was for me that was like the moment of like the pivot for her. You've restored my father's faith. And you've restored my son's. Somehow I can still feel connected to him if I help create the thing that he wanted to have happen. Yeah, there's there's a lot of wrestling with the past, of course, in this. Yeah. And it's 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 that fear that, you know, you as you've talked about many times, um, we we cling to the familiar and we fear the the, the, the unknown. Um even when it's blatantly obvious that the 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 familiar is worse for us, even if we we, we understand it, we're not blind to it, um, and it's this idea that I am who I am because of what has already happened. So if hmm. what has already happened ceases to be the norm, then who am I? What am I? What am I yeah. doing? Why am I motivated to do anything? And the film, I think, does a really excellent job of pointing out that the past doesn't necessarily be, become erased through change. Mm-hmm. Like, the, what endures past this point is, like, the relationships between, especially, of course, our, our familiar characters. And I think this is exemplified well with the stuff with Sulu, which feels a little tangential yeah. sometimes. Um, it's important because when we get to our, our, our Voyager episode um uh, at our next episode, but... Uh... Standing by, Captain Kirk. Sulu, you realize that by even talking to us, you're violating regulations. I'm sorry, Captain. Her message is breaking up. My loyalty is to these people, not to this institution. Yeah. It, it, it's in stark contrast to, like, Valeris, who's like... You have betrayed the Federation. All of you. And what do you think you've been doing? Saving Starfleet. To offer Klingons safe haven within Federation space is suicide. Klingons would become the alien trash of the galaxy. And if we dismantle the fleet, we'd be defenseless before an aggressive species with a foothold on our territory. The opportunity here is to bring them to their needs. Then we'll be in a far better position to dictate terms. The Klingons have never been trustworthy. Starfleet needs to exist, um, and it exists for this purpose. Um, and the fact that you're you're talking about changing it, and we're not going to have as big a military, and uh, I can't have that happen because that's what it is. That's what I am. That's what my uniform is. That's what I've worked up my whole career for. Um, it's it's this wonderful contrast because Sulu, now a decorated captain of his own ship, is like, no, it's about the people, and that's what we hold on to.
the, during the dinner scene with um, Gorkin and, and the Enterprise crew, I, I, ha- I did a double take when he said, You've not experienced Shakespeare until you have read him in the original Klingon. And I was like, wait, did I hear that right? <laughs> that was like, that was, I was, I was so confused in that moment. If I remember correctly, this was a time in which there was like a, a thing about like a, um, Shakespeare maybe didn't exist, right? That was a, a, a point of scholarship was like, oh, we, we've vaulted, we, we, we've kept these plays and these writings on such a high pedestal for so long and uh, connected them to this guy, um, William Shakespeare, it's like, oh no, well, really, it was written by lots of different people, and he stole from, you know, it's like, it was the beginning of that era of uh, historical scholarship about Shakespeare, if I remember correctly, I might be wrong about that, but in any event, it does allude to that idea that we have misunderstood um, a a kind of fundamental piece of history, and I think, you know, there's the humor piece of it, which is like, haha, maybe Shakespeare was a secret Klingon living in England or something. There is an old Vulcan proverb. Only Nixon could go to China. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that, why, why that? The Vulcans would not care about that. <laughs> There's a lot of those little things. An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. He's referring to Sherlock Holmes. It's like, uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> and okay. um, Chekhov even mentions... Perhaps you know Russian epic... Cinderella. It's all of these like clearly like historically inaccurate things, as far as we know, right? And of course, Star Trek is is infamous for also changing history. We'll we'll get to some episodes someday. You know, the Vulcans invented Velcro, and um, the, <laughs> the the Nazi. We did a Nazi episode where Archer and company were there, and you know, it's lots of stuff like that. Um, yeah. But it, to me, it speaks to this idea of the importance of historical accuracy and the sort of cultural touchstones that that has, right? It's like, okay. we um, we have an assumption always, wh- whether we like to or not, even, even if we're really like sort of fair-minded about it, that what we understand of history is accurate. Like we can't, even, if, even though we might have the wisdom, as Spock would point out, to know that we don't necessarily know what we think we know, we have to, base our assumptions on something you know and those assumptions are that well yeah William Shakespeare was a guy who lived in in Elizabethan England and wrote these plays and and that's where we get all these amazing quotes and um uh the 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 flow of history and the colonialism and all these sort of things they happened and they happened for a reason and this is the world that we have now um and again going on this theme of change you know trying to put ourselves in the place of people living in the 80s, 1980s, never not being able to imagine a world without the Cold War, without the USSR and the United States being at odds in this nuclear arms race and this potential yeah. um, or this enduring stalemate, not being able to imagine a different historical context. Now, you and I look at this and we're like, I don't, <laughs> you saw this movie with all its really obvious historical illusions, had no idea that that's what even was being attempted to be talked about. Um, yeah. it's, and that's only, well, that's what that 30 years ago, right? Right. Basically 1991. Yeah. So 30, 30 years, not, not that long, not, not that long, a, a, a chunk of history, all things considered. I, I think the film is playing with that, just that idea of like these things that we hold dear. I mean, who, who says the most Shakespeare quotes in the whole thing? It's Chang. It's constantly <laughs> quoting Shakespeare, the Klingon who, you know, right. And it's, it almost makes me think of like, you know, um, you and I are musicians involved in, in, in a lot of um, uh, opera adjacent things at times, for those who, who don't know. And, you know, operas, of course, deal with historical texts, but they're performed by people who, uh, they themselves, their personal identities, very often have nothing to do with the, the very historical things going on on stage. You've talked before about, um, is it Bridgerton? Is that the show where there's like uh, they recast? Oh yeah. Yeah, they're having like racially blind casting for historical things that obviously would not have happened at the time. It's inaccurate, but it's maybe more relevant by by taking away that veneer. And it's like, well, who's to say who owns 
which parts of history. It's, 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 a, it's a reckoning that we're always going through, I think. If you want to get really kind of meta and esoteric... Always. Technically, and always. Um, this is why we're friends. Technically, any time that you remember something, you're remembering it in the present. You know? So even memory is a present experience. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, I feel like oh you like, mean oh yeah 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 like the but like you're when you remember something you're creating the memory of remembering it therefore the memory is it just 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 happened. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So like even the way we perceive and understand time is is can be inaccurate. Um, and also any time that you access a memory you slightly change it. You're kind of make, it's like xeroxing like a copy of a copy of a copy. At which point like it's hard to actually get back to the original memory or image if you've accessed it a lot, which changes history. Mm -hmm. It changes your own personal history, right? The more you think about it. And, and I, I think that's really fascinating and kind of will blow my mind in, in ways that make me, you know, like, how do I go to the grocery store if time is an illusion? Mm -hmm. You know, like sometimes I like end up in that place. So in one way, I think the past and history and memory is very ephemeral and, and more wispy than I think we are comfortably able to acknowledge for the most part. We want to, like you, like you were saying, like we're like our idea of who we are and how we exist in the world and how we navigate the world are based on past experiences. And if those past experiences are challenged, then we get, really un discombobulated and we're like Defensive. how do we move through the world if we can't predict anything yeah. and like that's part of how we've learned to adapt and survive is is our ability to predict like that's that's one of the that's one of the human superpowers human rights why the very name is racist the federation is no more than a homo sapiens only club you and i have talked about how you know humans like the whole Star Trek universe is very human centric. You know, we assume, you know, like we assume that these aliens are like us, you know, like the Vulcan, like, and, and all the different alien races kind of like, will. I don't want to say a caricature, but like they'll really like exaggerate certain aspects, you know, like the Vulcans are like completely logical and the Klingons can be, very violent, you know, and like, so each race is kind of like, they turn up the, the volume of a very particular human construct. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I think that makes sense for like where we are in, in human history. We don't know of another highly advanced, conscious, intelligent species out there with right. which we can understand, how much of our own, how much of our own experience is universal? The foundation of human empathy is, is our ability to say like, there is a level of human experience, which is fundamentally shared by almost all people. Universal. And, and empathy is trying to, f yeah, universal. Yeah. And, and empathy is trying to find that to be like, oh, like, yeah, you and I like, we might have had different lives, but we can connect over this piece that we share. It's like we've both gone to the same place in like the corner of the universe, and we both ring in that in that space. And at the same time, you can really overlook lived experiences. You know, if you say, well, what you've experienced is exactly like what I've experienced. I think that's a problem you know, especially with like, you know, racism and as people are trying to understand it, you know, I think a lot of white people un unintentionally so will dismiss a black person's lived experience because they can't relate to it. They're like, oh, like this must have been like it was for me and really discount like the very different lived experiences of somebody else and acknowledging that, okay, maybe that is part of life that I don't know. Please tell me about it. Token, I get it now. I don't get it. I've been trying to say that I understand how you feel, but I'll never understand. I'll never really get how it feels for a black person to have somebody use the N-word. I don't get it. Now you get it, Stan. It's a yes and. Yes and. Are, are you using empathy to connect or are you using empathy to erase? And I think that's a really important question. When, when like, like, what is the purpose and... Or, 
what is the purpose and what is the impact of, of how I'm trying to relate to this person right now? Human beings. But Captain, we both know that I am not human. Spock, you want to know something? Everybody's human. I find that remark insulting. That's a very human thing, you know, to think that there is something in me that I can see in you and we are similar. Like that's that's how, again, the human psyche is just wired. It's how projection works. We see ourselves in each other. Like mm -hmm. that that is just how the human creature works. And we can't we can't get out of that. But I think it's really, really presumptuous to say all sentient life is exactly like that, you know? And, and so I think it's just a balance, you know? I think it, I it, it's you. a really big balance and, I, and I, I caution against the erasure part of it, you know? I got you, I got you. Well, in terms of, yeah, the, the allegorical structure, it becomes Ouroboros, right? It's, it's like you can't, we can't solve this problem because we don't know of any actual aliens at this point in our history. So all we can do is look at the way Star Trek treats aliens and say, well, here's the allegorical function. Um, you know, yeah. like in this movie, obviously Klingons equal Russians or whatever. And which is ironic <laughs> in a lot of ways, <clears throat> because of course we, we'd have to assume that Russian, we know <laughs> that Russian people are way more similar to non-Russians than presumably people from Kronos and the Beta Quadrant are to human beings. There's the chiaroscuro of it. There's the piece of it that says, as you're saying, on an empathetic level, we we have to find ourselves and other people in or because that's just the way we work in order to build that empathy, in order to be kind. I think that's the goal, right? Is to be kind and to mm. be um, to attempt understanding, but to recognize in that attempt that we can't actually have understanding. All we can do is acknowledge that other people go through things that we can't fully understand and try to balance meeting their needs and meeting our needs and it's it's incredibly difficult and delicate you must have faith faith that the universe will unfold as it should but is that logical surely we must logic 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 is the beginning of wisdom valerius not the end. Ironic for a Vulcan, it's about faith. It's about yeah. having the faith that acknowledging each other's lived experiences will bring us both together into a better place. But it, 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 it cannot be the result of pure logic. Pure logic gets us to that place where unless I fully get where you're coming from, I'm not going to go there with you. And that's where Valeris is yeah. stuck, right? As well as Cartwright and all these other people. So it's as overt as so many of the allusions are to the Cold War and to all these other things and kind of the obvious stuff with Kirk's son versus uh, Gorkhan being murdered. Um, there's a lot of really subtle messaging happening in this movie that uh, isn't always the case for Star Trek. Star Trek can be pretty on the nose sometimes. So it's, I, I think- Whales! <laughs> It's unfortunate that we didn't get to actually be together as we usually are for our movie nights. This time it didn't quite work out. So I know, I, I missed our popcorn. We have, uh, maybe when we get to the last movie, whatever that is, we'll remember to do the popcorn situation and get this working I will, out. I, I will fly to New York if I have to. Come on, we'll just make it happen. Perfect. Um, I I think this is one of the best of the movies. They're, they're pretty hit and miss um, overall. Um, but we've now done one pretty bad one one quite good one and now i think this is this falls into the into the good category for sure um despite the fact you know we didn't mention we didn't talk a whole lot about this this movie had a lot of limitations set on it so between star trek 4 the the, the whales <laughs> and this one was star trek 5 which is basically william shatner's vanity project and it was very expensive and very 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 bad possibly the worst star trek movie if not the worst one of the worst 
Um, and it is so badly that this movie's budget was like slashed. Um, oh, going damn. Into it. Okay. Yeah. And the only thing that got it made was the fact that it was sort of celebrating this anniversary and they gave them a few extra bucks to, to make it happen. But it meant that they yeah. really had to be creative about how they spent that money. Um, and is, is that why the Klingon blood looks so ridiculous? <laughs> like that was just, that was even for that time. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is hokey. I, you know, I, that's a good question. I don't think it's a budget thing so much as they wanted to make sure that it was visually distinctive because it was such a sort of key, key plot point. Um, but I agree that it's one, it's one of the things that holds up the least well. Um, but ironically, the thing that you would think would be the least enduring, um, which is the fact that it leans hard into like a very contemporary political issue doesn't limit the film. It still has a lot to say about legacy and the things that we say to the upcoming generation and, um, obviously the things we talked about racism and, and, and prejudice and implicit bias, um, that are as relevant today as they were in 1991. And for that reason, it's like, I just, it's, it's a, to me a wonderful sort of, uh, cornerstone of, of the Star Trek franchise and where we are now, it really does kind of divide it in half because, um, next generation yeah. was on the air doing really well at this time in the fourth or fifth season. Um, kind of like heyday of, of Star Trek on TV and everything that came before it was sort of the struggle bus getting there. And then after that point, we've had major uh, ups and downs with DSN and Voyager and then Enterprise sinking the franchise and then yeah. terrible movies and then the rebirth and where we are now. And who knows where we're going to be in another 30 years with Star Trek. But it's a good reminder that these things um, are always going to endure. You know, as we're living our own lives, we kind of think that like, hey, we're going to do the full circle. Like, you know, the arc of my life is somehow parallel to the arc of humanity or whatever. Like, I will get like the furthest. And but ge- because of generations, like you actually kind of hope that the next generation and the people like that come after you go further than you. Like that's that's mm. like like you want your kids to move out of the house. It's like that. It It's painful. <laughs> that transition is painful and that loss is painful and to see people go past you. But if that didn't happen, we would be a stagnant species. Yeah. And I think that's like a, 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 one of the things that's really interesting to reconcile when you get older. And, um, you know, one of the beautiful metaphors that I've heard recently um, are, you know, the monarch butterflies, which God willing, the crick don't rise, remain a species. So you know, other big soapbox, but, um, the monarch butterflies, when they migrate from Southern California to like Northern California, um, or like, you know, the, up the, up the coast, the same butterflies that start in Mexico are not the same butterflies that make it all the way North. It's actually a relay race where like there are butterflies being born along the migratory route and they, it's like, it's just this constant, like, circling and recycling. And so that the people that start are not the people that end up at the end. And I had no, like, you know, I didn't know that. I thought all the butterflies, like, made it made it all the way. And that's not how it works. But that's also the only way that anyone can make it, is if we go as far as we can and then pass it on. And, you know, to me, I think that's one of the big transitional moments of going from youth to youth to more adulthood to cronehood or whatever you want to call it. But that realizing like, oh, like it's not for me to finish this. Hmm. And how do I hand this off to someone else in the hopes that something will continue even after I'm gone? Life is a sexy butterfly relay race. I like that. Thank you, Elizabeth, for, as always, your incredible insight. Lovely conversation. This was a fun one to do. Um, we're going to get, fun, yeah. <laughs> we're going to get into the meat of the 30th anniversary celebration on our next episode and talk about Flashback, which is the Voyager um, response to this film. And we're going to talk about all of the Tribble episodes, um, starting, of course, with the original series. There's a series. DS9 Tribble episode, isn't there? Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, DS9 um, goes back to Enterprise, like the original series. I remember watching that at the time and being like, what the hell is this? 
Exactly. So we have the heightened political uh, drama of Star Trek VI and the Tribble. <laughs> the two, I think the two um, like best examples of the range that Star Trek can be being celebrated on uh, the 30th anniversary. So I'm really looking forward to nice. chatting with you about that next time. Thank you again. Thank you to our listeners and patrons and uh, always comments, reviews um, are appreciated. And Elizabeth, I will see you next time. See you next time. What is this? Multiple choice?